Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. While the coronavirus pandemic continued to dominate news from the national park system this past week, it wasn't the only news we brought you. There was the $5,000 fine and two-year ban from Zion National Park for a man who base-jumped from the park's great white throne. There was the prison term handed a Washington state man who broke into vehicles parked at Olympic and Mount Rainier National Parks and stole thousands of dollars of electronics as well as credit cards. And there was the death of a visitor to Death Valley National Park who apparently fell several hundred feet from the manly beacon to his death. We also brought you our interview with Edward Keeble, the Interior Department lawyer who will be heading to Grand Canyon National Park to take over there as superintendent. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we're talking about camping in the national park system. Camping in the front country campgrounds. There are just over 500 campgrounds across the system, and many of them are in various conditions. Individual sites often are well-worn and dusty if crews haven't built tent pads. Parking areas might be somewhat decrepit, restrooms in a sorry state. Overall, those campgrounds with their 16,648 sites carry a maintenance backlog of about $350 million. Against those needs are demands. Demands that range from larger campgrounds with more sites and sites large enough to accommodate today's larger RVs to demands for Wi-Fi and more recreational amenities, especially for families with young children. Hot and cold running showers are popular requests as well. What will the 21st century National Park campground look like? And how can we afford it? What do you want the campgrounds to look like? What amenities are you interested in finding when you pull into a campground? To help answer these questions, the National Park Service retained two outside consultants to examine the campgrounds, the issues they face, and the demands today's campers want. One of the interesting takeaways from those studies was that all campers are chasing the opportunity to, quote, escape the real world and get lost in the majesty of nature. These natural resources are the magnet that attract campers. In other words, don't overdevelop nature. We've asked Derek Crandall, the counselor for the National Park Hospitality Association, to discuss those studies with us. After that conversation, contributing writer Kim O'Connell and I also visit a bit to explain why we went down to Florida back in early March and what we'll be bringing to you in words and videos in the weeks ahead. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. There are across the National Park System just over 500 front country campgrounds. 
502, in fact, according to the latest data. And within those campgrounds, there are roughly 16,650 individual campsites. But what condition are those campgrounds and their campsites in? Are they being used to capacity? Do they have maintenance issues as most of the national park system does? And what about user demands? What do today's campers want in terms of campground amenities? Is a connection with nature still a prime consideration? Or do they prefer a connection with the internet? CBRE and CHM Government Services, two business management consultants, recently prepared two reports for the National Park Service. These data-rich documents look at everything from current and developing expectations for camping to economic profiles and trends, campground industry standards, and summaries of the national and regional camping markets. To help us uh, sift through these findings, we're joined today by Derek Crandall, the counselor for the National Park Hospitality Association, an organization that represents many of the concessionaires that operate today in the national park system. Welcome to The Traveler, Derek. Well, thank you, Kurt. Glad to be with you here and glad to be focusing on a really important issue as we look at the future of great park experiences in the national parks. And it's certainly a timely issue as uh, spring is starting to spring across the country and uh, a lot of us have cabin fever from being uh, stuck in place uh, due to the coronavirus um, pandemic. And hopefully that will lift and let us get back out into the campgrounds, although perhaps one side benefit is that um, they get a little time to recuperate from uh, the busy summer season, perhaps. <laughs> well, I, I definitely share your excitement about being able to get back out and hitting the trails and going camping and 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 just hearing the stories that our park units have to to be told. Yeah, yeah. Now, overall, according to these uh, reports, the camping industry seems to be fairly healthy across the country. Um, one section says that long-term demand appears robust and growth is driven primarily through the increase in annual camping households and their higher frequency to camp. I think there's lots of good news, and and that's one of the things we're so excited about in terms of just uh, the Park Service effort to look at the big picture about campgrounds and the role campgrounds have played historically for the national parks and where they can be in the future. I think the, the overview of these two reports by the Park Service says it all. Campgrounds provide a low-cost and unique opportunity for visitors to experience National Park Service sites across the country. I think it's really important that uh, you know, the, the Park Service understands this, this really, really important asset that now provides almost 8 million overnight experiences uh, in, in national parks. And of course, it's a, a huge economic factor in the country. Um, in fact, the camping industry leads the outdoor recreation segment, which also includes fishing, hunting, camping, snow sports, off-roading, water sports, and on and on. The camping segment alone has annual revenues of nearly $170 billion, um, according to 2018 numbers. That's huge. I never realized it was that big. I mean, is it really stands out when you re- recognize that second place went to fishing with only about $36 billion. Well, I think you have to look at the the other thing. Camping is so connected to all those other activities that, that you stress. You take away camping and you actually diminish the participation in fishing and in bicycling and in hiking and so many other kinds of things. It's one of those core platform activities because when you're out there 
I don't care whether it's in a national park campground or a national forest campground or a BLM campground, you're there because you really want to go out and use all of the, the opportunities that surround you. I, you don't just sit there on a chair at your campsite. You, you get out and you do those things that you're passionate about. You get a lot more exercise. You breathe a lot more fresh air. You, you, you just find these opportunities to appreciate the, the long-term American commitment to protect core areas as national parks, national forests, wildlife refuges, and more. Now, in, in looking at this, these reports, um, one thing that stood out, I mean, along with uh, the finding that long-term demand uh, appears to be robust, I, I noticed a comment that there was a 22% increase in annual camper households from 2014 to 2018. And yet I know your organization is kind of concerned about uh, camping in national parks. Why is that? Well, the while there has been an increase in camping, the uh, that increase is not reflected in overnight stays in national parks, camping in national parks is actually down substantially from where it was 30 years ago. And there are many reasons, and we'll go into that, I'm sure, in this conversation, some of which are are, uh, appropriate for the Park Service to address, some of which may not be, but it's the, the growth in camping overall nationally is not reflected in the growth or lack of growth in camping in national parks. You know, um, a, a couple of years ago, a book came out. Um, it was written by Terrence Young, a professor of geography at uh, California State Polytechnic University. Its title was Heading Out, A History of American Camping. And one of the things that he mentioned in his book, he questioned whether American had seen its heyday of camping. He said, is sleeping under the stars now on a slow downward trajectory? And he, he provides statistics to back up his contention including some from the National Park Service that would tend to indicate that camping, car camping, front country tent camping, and backpacking peaked in 1981 with uh, 11.2 million people getting out to camp that year. And his his contention was that it's gotten too soft, too easy. Um, we've got these big mobile homes that, you know, you practically take your home with you with a generator and television, satellite dish, shower, kitchen, et cetera. And camp, car campers also um, have an easier life what do you think about that? Could that possibly be a, a factor in, in some of the declines in some areas? Well, I don't think so at all. I mean, now, one thing we can't deny is that uh, our lifestyles have changed dramatically. Um, I'm a boomer. Uh, I was raised by uh, a dad that went off to fight in World War II, came back, and like so many of his generation, fought for things that he valued. And one of those was the great outdoors. So we spent a lot of time in our, you know, Chevy station wagon, driving, camping in tents, and then graduating to a very small travel trailer for six of us, a 15-foot travel trailer. But, you know, he had that passion. I will say now that uh, we do find the, the campers who come to national parks, and frankly, all of the camping, whether it's state parks or private parks, are looking for a few more amenities. They want clean bathrooms. They want some opportunities for some other amenities. Uh, and that includes things like uh, some food options, uh, a, a camp store and a variety of other kinds of things. Uh, but the one thing to understand is that, that there is now more diversity in camping opportunities. 
the camping as defined by these two research reports includes not only tents and RVs, but a variety of other kinds of ways to, to uh, be in something that we would describe as a camper. And, and that includes cabins and, uh, and canvas-sided permanent structures that are sort of tent-like, but come closer to what I would describe as, as glamping. So uh, while it may be true that, that a segment of the camping community is not growing, the overall uh, broadened camping market is very robust. Uh, and, and we're delighted about that because it still affords the American families of 2020 and beyond to have the kind of experiences that many of us had going to a national park, waking up early in the morning, hearing the birds, seeing the, the critters out there, uh, and spending a full day in the park, not an hour driving in from a gateway community, and having firsthand contact with park rangers and other interpreters and, and hearing the park stories. And I think um, this is where there, there might be some difference of opinion out there across the, the, the camping world. Um, as you mentioned, there, there is fairly good uh, diversity and ethnicity across um, the, the camping community, um, and each seems to want different things. Hispanics, the report notes, um, camp in, in larger groups than, than say, um, Asians or whites. And so, you know, they would want a larger campground, perhaps, or um, more group campgrounds. And, and yet it seemed that um, the key for all campers is the opportunity to, as the authors wrote, escape the real world and get lost in the majesty of nature. These natural resources are the magnet that attract campers. So in other words, um, my takeaway was we don't want to overdevelop nature. So how do you meet these different desires for what sort of amenities should be out there. I mean, uh, the, the report noted that uh, the growing camper segment who say technology detracts from their experience is an important segment to understand. So do we really want Wi-Fi everywhere? Well, I, I think Wi-Fi is one of the easiest to manage amenities in a national park or any campground setting, because if you choose not to use it, then you don't have it. I mean, they, it's uh, one thing about our smartphones, our tablets, and others, they have on and off switches. So if you don't want technology in your campground, then it's real easy to, to not have it. I would say, though, that that's sort of a, uh, an absolute prerequisite in terms of managing campgrounds in the future to deliver great experiences. The, the now capability that we have to use Wi-Fi to deliver information that's very important to campers about weather or other kinds of safety issues and to, to deliver what we no longer in some cases can afford to do with real live people. You can do some amazing things in terms of, of just using good apps to make a trail walk something that is useful as a storyteller for people of all age groups, so for kids, as well as millennials, as well as seniors, but also in multiple languages. One of the things that we really need to do in our parks is tell our stories in, uh, in, in, with vocabulary and with language that's appropriate to the visitors. So as we look at a diverse American population and we're trying to explain complex issues like civil rights and a variety of other kinds of things or natural resources like climate change, 
that often can be done better in the, the native language of our park visitors. So Wi-Fi is a tremendous tool. I, you know, I, I don't get it in terms of people uh, who, who, you know, just are emotionally upset about the idea of Wi-Fi because they can turn it off. There's no reason for them to have to spend screen time when they're in a campground. That's, that's a controllable issue. Uh, you're absolutely right. However, as you well know, um, campgrounds are fairly tight places in terms of the sites being in close proximity to one another. And so while you or I could turn off our Wi-Fi and don't have to worry about the cell phone ringing, what about the person in the, the next campsite over who wants to watch a movie till one o'clock in the morning or is jabbering on their phone all night? I mean, how do you, how do you control that to um, protect the natural experience as it were? Well, we do that all the time. Most national park campgrounds have quiet periods and they start in many cases as early as eight o'clock. I don't know of any that extend beyond 10 o'clock, but you know, that, that reminds me of my growing up days. You know, I, I grew up in the Northeast, spent a lot of time on the Appalachian trail and literally back in the 1960s and 1970s, people would put on their shoulders these big boom boxes and walk along the Appalachian trail. And, you know, it, it absolutely infuriated us because it was an invasion of, of our use of the outdoors. You know, and then what happened is the Sony Walkman developed and people now have, have earbuds and other kinds of things. So if they choose to be listening, whether it's to interpretation or to music, and they go on the Appalachian Trail, they can do it in a way that doesn't interfere with the use of that resource by others. Campgrounds can be exactly like that. In fact, what these reports and research by the Park Service is underscoring is that we are, our, our lack of, of active management of the campgrounds is actually the, the cause of some of these failures and the, the incursions on the rights of others. If we simply had the the utility hookups so that gen sets didn't have to be run and that maybe we had uh, loops in national parks that were designed for pull through larger RVs and then other loops that were designed to to uh, provide the amenities that tent campers want like platforms and other kinds of things that would be a, a an active management that helps people uh, enjoy their time in the National Park campground more. What's more important, though, is that we want the people coming out of each of these campsites to be embraced by the park and its partners and offered great opportunities to use the trails, to go fishing, to do other kinds of things that deliver the experience. It, I mean, I, I guess there's some value in somebody driving up to a Shenandoah National Park just outside of Washington, D.C., in their RV, parking there and staying in the RV and watching TV and cooking and doing all those kind of things in their RV. But, you know, why wouldn't those people stay home? I assume, and I think all of our indications are, that people, whether they're sleeping in a tent or whether they're sleeping in an RV, are really after the same thing. They want that connection with nature. And so, therefore, we need to focus on how do we get people to, to take advantage of what these park units are, the stories they have to tell. You know, and, and I, uh, I I didn't respond to a question that, that you mentioned before about the growth in 
and families, American families are out there camping, the fact that it is more diverse, you know, we're greatly heightened by that. I mean, part of the sharing of the history of this wonderful nation of ours, with particularly people who who didn't come on the Mayflower, is to to make sure that that we do offer up the opportunity for them to use their national parks to, to get the experiences out there. And the recent research indicates that we do have substantial interest in the African-American and Hispanic and Asian-American communities. In fact, all three of those are overrepresented in, in new campers. And that's really exciting. I, I applaud your optimism that, um, to coin a phrase, um, Americans in the outdoors will socially distance themselves in terms of communications and uh, Wi-Fi and whatnot. I, I know I've been on the Appalachian Trail myself, and I heard a gentleman coming down the trail because his volume was turned up so high. Anyway, we're talking with Derek Crandall, the counselor for the National Park Hospitality Association, uh, about a set of new studies um, conducted for the National Park Service on managing the second century of campgrounds in the park system. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. We're here today with Derek Crandall, the counselor for the National Park Hospitality Association, discussing um, some new reports that the National Park Service commissioned on how to manage the second century of campgrounds in the national park system. Derek, as we've been discussing, there are a lot of positives out there. You did mention um, a need perhaps for some larger campgrounds to deal with the larger RVs that are coming out there. Um, The reports note that RV camping does indeed need more infrastructure. But I I would ask, are national parks the proper settings for enlarging campgrounds to meet these needs? Or should private campgrounds ringing the parks handle this? Since 1980s, I'm sure you're aware overall downward trend of RV users in the national parks. And the report hinted that this might be due to maintenance issues. But but that aside, do we need larger RV campgrounds in the park system? Well, I, I think what you're talking about is, do we need camping in the national parks? I and mean, that's an absolute yes. Can we accommodate a diverse way for people to spend overnight and enjoy similar overall park experiences? Absolutely. And we have to make sure that we have the, the right kind of a platform for that to exist. You know, the, the, uh, the two studies 
are part of a very important uh, new effort by the Park Service to, to just examine more about visitors. I, you know, the National Park Service is inhibited by its lack of really good information about visitors to national parks of all kinds, including visitors who stay in campgrounds. And I think we're on the way. The Park Service has, has made some real progress in terms of just basically understanding more about current visitors, people who are not coming and why they're not coming. And, and this, uh, I, I give huge applause to the Park Service for uh, beginning this process of asking about what should campgrounds for the second century of the National Park Service look like? So I'll, I'll start with that. But I would say that both reports conclude the same thing, that we're looking at campgrounds that were designed in the 50s and 60s, uh, built in the 60s and 70s, and frankly, they need investment work upgrading. Uh, we, we have a deferred maintenance backlog of about $350 million in our campgrounds alone, and that means poorly designed campground bathrooms. They're not ADA compliant, and uh, they don't have the kinds of, of design that's appropriate, whether it's for the, the Hispanic family that wants to bring eight or 10 people and have two picnic tables at their, their place, or whether it's for a, uh, an RV for seniors who are touring the country and they're towing a car. You know, there, there are very few park service campsites that have the space for a 40-foot Class A motorhome towing a, a vehicle, uh, the, the footprint isn't large enough. Do we have to make all of the campgrounds compliant for those? Absolutely not. You know, one of the things that, that the Park Service has emphasized and the reports reflect, we're not looking for cookie cutter campgrounds. We should have differences between an Acadia and a Yosemite and, and all of the, the different kind of units but I think as you look at some parks like Badlands or Big Bend that are pretty far from, from any kind of gateway communities, those may be logical places to either make room for larger RVs or to, to provide some four-sided structures, some cabins for people to stay in. I think cabins would be an interesting addition. I know um, one of my earliest experiences um, out camping, so to speak, was uh, a family vacation into Pennsylvania, probably up in the Poconos someplace, and uh, a nice tidy cabin. And uh, I remember, you know, sitting around the, the, the fireplace at night and roasting marshmallows. Now, the, the National Park Advisory Commission was supposed to meet in March, and of course that was um, postponed because of the coronavirus pandemic. One of the things they were going to discuss was... Um, National Park Service Second Century Campground Strategy. And they were looking, um, the, the Park Service was looking for input and recommendations on how to improve the accessibility and universal design in campgrounds. And I know um, six parks, I guess, have been selected for pilot campground projects. Lake Mead, Olympic, Great Smoky Mountains, Big Bend, Blue Ridge Parkway, Glen Canyon, NRA. Do, do you know exactly what they're, they're looking at in terms of those pilot programs? Well, I, I think this reflects something that's very much in keeping with the whole Centennial Project as the Park Service turned 100. It's looking at the big picture and saying, you know, we're today we are benefited incredibly by the Stephen Mathers and the others who looked ahead and, and understood what these parks could be for future Americans. And uh, the overall campground strategy and these two reports reflect, for the first time, 
some some real unification of different elements of the the park service we're getting the park service operations people the people that that really are are involved in in running the parks along with the commercial services people and the park planning people to all come together and say let's hire some some good thinking organizations to give us some some data and and then let's figure out a way to have a dialogue with the state parks, the, uh, the the commercial recreation sector, including private campgrounds, and try to figure out what our niche is and what we need to do, not to design for camping of 2020, but really sort of look ahead 20, 30, 40 years and say, what will that be? I mean, I think there's a real legitimate question about, will we have big class A motorhomes in 10 or 15 or 20 years? Certainly, we'll have some because there are a huge number that are in existence right now. They don't wear out very fast, so we'll still be seeing there. But will that be where the market is is growing fastest? Probably not. I think there will be more people who fly into a Denver, hop in a uh, a hybrid or an electric vehicle, and drive up to Rocky Mountain National Park. And in those cases. I think we we need to to look at the factors that that can contribute to a great park experience. First of all, in many of our big western parks, we have wildlife problems. We have parks like Fishing Bridge up in Yellowstone that are closed to all but hard-sided camping. We have other parks where you know there there are other kinds of appropriate restrictions, but what we don't want to see is what has happened in a number of parks and which frankly we we don't have national numbers on, but I firmly believe the evidence is clear. We have lost a large number of national park campgrounds and campsites because of maintenance problems, whether it's water systems or, or just manpower shortages, uh, and we've actually closed those. So we've reduced the capacity of the national parks to host camping. And we have not made accommodations for people who decide that they want something more. They don't want to sleep on the ground. I don't think success in visiting a national park needs to be reflected in carrying a 45-pound pack, uh, including your 10 sleeping bags and everything else. I think you are just fine if you stay in a national park and, and use a cot in a tent. I think you're fine if you stay in the kind of cabin, a primitive cabin, that may allow some some cooking on something other than an outdoor fire pit. I think those are all accommodations to to change that's going on in our lifestyle, and that we can uh, we can certainly provide for in national park campgrounds. There's certainly a conundrum out there that uh, the managers are facing with all those different demands that that people want. I mean, there's a segment that wants the unspoiled wilderness. There's the other segment that wants the the amenities like Wi-Fi or or a cabin to sleep in. But let's let's get back to today's problems, which is that 350 or so million dollar maintenance backlog in the campgrounds across the national park system. Don't you first have to tackle that before you can start designing the 21st century campground? I mean, where will the revenues come from? Well, first of all, we're, you don't simply want to put money in to restore something to a 1960s kind of a, a, a pattern, a plan. So I think it would be foolish for us to invest lots of money simply to, to restore exactly what we had when these campgrounds were first mm-hmm. opened. I think we can have 
very interesting accommodations that that would would depend upon uh, you know the latest advances. Use our national park campgrounds as showpieces for technology advancement, such as renewable energy and and bathroom facilities that are are at the highest level to 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 minimize any impact on the the uh, the water and the uh, the other. Uh, aspects of the park environment. So I think there are great opportunities to invest in. So I am not a big fan of simply saying, okay, let's lay out our, our blueprint from 1965 and put the, you know, rebuild these roads and we'll rebuild these campsites according to those standards. I think we need to look at more looking forward, not just driving with our eyes focused on the rear view mirror. You know, and I wonder if it shouldn't be opened up to a, a competition of sorts. And by that, um, a few years back, this architectural firm in uh, Colorado on the Front Range won an award um, for the way it designed some backcountry vault toilets in Rocky Mountain National Park. And it was really amazing the way they designed them using native rock from the setting that you could barely see, you know, from a distance where the restroom was because it blended in so well, and then they actually came up with a, a pretty good uh, waste disposal system as well. And uh, maybe we need to get the, the colleges and the universities across the country involved in some of this. One thing that's really interesting at the, uh, the end of the report, um, that while they were saying the campground industry is robust and thriving and that the future looks bright, saying where we're going to be 20 years from now is impossible because, as the authors wrote, we don't know what we don't know. I think, first of all, I love the idea of having some contests. The national parks should be an attractive venue for uh, architects and engineers and everybody else. And, and the Park Service has a unique capability to, to get a lot of that, that best effort done on free or near free basis. So I, I would totally agree with your, your idea of, of just um, moving ahead. Now we have to be careful. While campgrounds aren't necessarily the the most important aspect of that, but we do have a variety of of historic preservation responsibilities in national parks. So design elements and changes to existing structures oftentimes have to be done very carefully, and um, so we need to reflect that. But we clearly believe that there can be visually positive kinds of uh, advances that actually would will allow our campgrounds to not look like the the commercial campgrounds in the gateway communities that's not what we're after do we want to offer some of the same amenities like basic stores and and other things absolutely but we don't have to do it in the same way i don't think anybody that i know of thinks there should be swimming pools in national park campgrounds i i think we're we're talking about places that still are respectful of and appropriate for being in a national park setting. But we're we're very excited about looking ahead, trying to make it attractive. I will also say that, um, you know, back about five or six years ago, Oprah Winfield uh, went to uh, Yosemite National Park and went camping. And um, while her camping experience was interesting in that she, you know, consumed quite a few uh, Russian mules and and other kinds of things. 
uh, she made it very clear that, you know, she was not going to sleep on the ground. She was going to sleep on a cot. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those kinds of accommodations. Uh, you know, the, there's no test to, to having to, to show some pain. And I will say right now, I've slept in a, on the ground a whole bunch of times. But right now, when I go to a national park, I don't mind being insulated from the ground and having a little cushy kind of a, a, a place to sleep in. Uh, and I also like some of the amenities that that allow me to do things other than just can't uh, make all my meals on my uh, Coleman stove. So I, I think there really can be a variety of accommodations. And by doing that, we'll be able to continue to appeal to the millennials and the generations thereafter and have them come try it out, be part of that first camping experience, and then become a lifetime advocate for our national parks. Well, it's definitely something to keep an eye on as we go forward. And, and certainly those pilot projects at those various national parks will be interesting to watch. We've been talking today with Derek Crandall, the counselor of for the National Park Hospitality Association regarding a couple of new reports that came out in terms of managing the second century of campgrounds in the National Park Service campgrounds. Derek, it's been a pleasure as always, and we'll have to revisit uh, down the road a little bit once we start to see um, some of the decisions that these two reports um, push the Park Service to make. Thank you, Kurt. Really enjoyed our conversation. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. the good fortune and good timing to travel to Florida in early March to visit Everglades National Park and Big Cypress National Preserve. Kim O'Connell, one of Traveler's contributing writers, joined me there to help provide coverage of issues at the two parks, as well as some of their wonders. We've continued to work on bringing those stories to life amid the added workload of the coronavirus pandemic, and we'll soon be rolling them out on nationalparkstraveler.org. 
Kim joins me today to provide a bit of a sneak preview of our work there. But before we get into that, Kim, this was your first trip to these two parks, correct? That's right. I'd been to Florida before, but never those two parks. Yeah, I've been to Florida um, mid-century, and um, I don't know if I actually got to Everglades or not. And I know I've never been to Big Cypress, so it was uh, quite an experience for myself as well. Did you come in with any preconceived notions or um, what you expected to see and what you really saw? Yeah, I certainly did. I think um, I always imagined that the Everglades would be wet and swampy, but there was far more diversity in the landscape at Everglades than I expected, especially when we went into the Pine Rockland area, which was a bit drier and had different kinds of trees and shrubs. So I found that interesting that there was kind of a, a, a play between the wet areas and the dry areas. And I know that they changed seasonally. So that that was interesting. Um, and just the, the vastness of the swamp and the beauty of the swamp, I found very interesting too. You know, I've been to other swamps in Louisiana and Virginia, and I think even in North Carolina, I've been to swampy um, preserves and areas, but the incredible diversity and vastness of the swamp areas, the marshy areas and the Everglades and Big Cypress really surprised me too. Yeah, yeah. I guess my my one big regret is that um, we were on such a tight timeline and we had so much ground to cover that, um, you know, I think we were down there for four or five days and it would have been nice to spend those four or five days in one of those two parks instead of trying to split it between those two parks because I know there's other areas of Everglades that I would have liked to have seen. I agree with you. I mean, I think we got an amazing amount of work done in those short days, but yeah, there's a lot to see down there and just the whole ecosystem is pretty spectacular. Now, of course, um, one day um, we headed out on foot across um, Big Cypress, across the Morro Prairie, and um, you found your water there, no? <laughs> there was enough water to last me a few days. Talk about swamp. Sometimes we were up to our ankles in water. And, you know, I remember the first moment my shoes got a little bit wet thinking, ooh, that's cold. And little did I know that we would spend hours and hours with wet feet tramping across Big Cypress. But again, it was it was pretty amazing. And talk about immersing yourself in a national park. I mean, what better way? You're literally feeling this national park come up through your feet. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, you know, all that water, I'm trying to think, was that heading into the dry season? Yeah, I guess it was coming into the dry season. And, and now, even though we had that much water around our feet in, in places, now they're heading into their fire season, which, you know, it's t- kind of difficult to get your head around that. Right, right. I mean, it's a vulnerable ecosystem in many ways, you know, and just really changeable and, you know, suspect to a lot of different or subject, I should say, to a lot of different forces. Yeah, yeah. And of course, um, going back to, to Everglades, you know, we, we got down to Flamingo area and we, we saw the um, the work there to bring lodging online with the eco tents and, and where they're going to, to put the cottages as they were. And then we had uh, a wonderful boat excursion um, down the Buttonwood Canal. That's right. I really enjoyed that. I felt like the Buttonwood Canal trip was a good overview opportunity for us because it was our first activity in the Everglades. I thought what a great way to get out on the water and see some of the wildlife that Everglades is famous for and the mangrove trees. And it was a great opportunity for us to kind of just get our bearings in that place. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And um, we also spent uh, some time paddling the Turner River Canal over at uh, Big Cypress. 
And I guess we hit that at the right time because, as I understand it now, the water levels had fallen and uh, some of that trail may not be as accessible as uh, we were able to uh, navigate. And even when we were there, it was pretty shallow at times. I remember hitting my paddle on the bottom several times. But that was, I would say, my favorite experience of our time there. It was really pretty magical. It felt like something out of a fantasy sci-fi Harry Potter movie or something. It was (laughs) really beautiful and just to get that deep into the mangrove tunnels was really amazing. Well, and with all the wildlife too, I mean, a lot of bird life there and, uh, you know, all those alligators that were just kind of drifting around in the water. Um, pretty interesting. Yeah. They didn't seem to care about us that much, which I thought was cool too. You know, they were like, this is my domain. You do your thing. I'll do mine. It's fine. (laughs) And I wonder if that's their natural behavior or if they too have become habituated to, to travelers in their, in their world. Yeah, that's a good question. But again, you know, we only had um, 24 or 36 hours to experience Big Cypress. And, you know, that's a preserve that's, what, over 700,000 acres? That's right. That's right. I remember that we learned that it was the first national preserve in the country. And when you're there, you can understand why. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's really, you know... I don't want to say unspoiled because we were there in part to see how, you know, it's, you know, endured some of the impacts of, you know, oil and gas exploration and other environmental impacts. But it does kind of have that untrammeled feel that you can almost squint and imagine what it was like before people were in South Florida. It was pretty cool that way. Yeah. And what really came home to me was, you know, you talk about the river of grass and this big sheet of water coming down from Lake Okeechobee. And I think a lot of people just think, oh, it's Everglades National Park, when I I think Big Cypress contributes roughly 40%, I think, of that water coming down from Okeechobee down across uh, those two parks and into Florida Bay and 10,000 Islands area and whatnot. I mean, it's just a huge scope of land and, and the ecosystem that we really have to be careful how we manage it. That's right. And I, I think, you know, we're we're all getting a better awareness these days about the interconnectedness of ecosystems and that national parks shouldn't be islands unto themselves. They are connected to other national parks and they're connected to cities and how we behave in all those places impacts all these other places. So I think that message is getting across in South Florida to a greater extent that it, it's a greater Everglades ecosystem and these parks are connected. And it was really cool for us to see that for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. One of the fun stories I thought was, you know, going into the Flamingo Visitor Center, which is coming through a, a rebirth of sorts. I mean, it was it was severely damaged by hurricanes in the past. And rather than just uh, scrap it and raise it and, and start brand new, they're really bringing it back in, in all its old glory, I guess. Yeah, I loved that building. You know, I, I, I studied historic preservation and I'm interested in old buildings, but I think people think of old buildings only as the ones that have red brick or white columns or something. And here's a truly historic building from the mid 20th century. And it's bright pink. It's bright pink. It's a modernist building. It was uh, you know, designed by a notable National Park Service architect named Cecil Doty, working with some other architects and folks. And it's a really distinctive building. And I think it really symbolized Flamingo for a long time. So I'm glad that it mattered to the Park Service to preserve it and restore it, it actually really rehabilitated. So it not only retains its historic character, it's actually better now. It's going to be you know, new and improved because it's going to have a better visitor center, better visitor experience. 
you know, more interactive exhibits and also event space, apparently. So it was it was cool to see that happening. Yeah, yeah. And and one thing we can't overlook is that um, there were a lot of outside groups that made this happen by applying for grants that are funding this work. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, um, we're going to start rolling these stories out in the, the next week or so, and um, it'll give us all a break from the coronavirus pandemic and hopefully um, some ideas about where we can go once uh, life gets back to normal. That sounds great, Kurt. Thank you. All right, Kim, I appreciate your help with that story. Thanks a lot. All those stories. <laughs> Thanks. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Please read our story on the campground studies on nationalparkstraveler.org and leave your thoughts there about what you'd like to see in terms of the 21st century National Park Campground. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.